Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. I almost said Matthew. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts 2, 42 through 47. What we're going to get a glimpse into here is really the first days in the life of this church in Acts chapter 2. Peter has just preached the sermon. We read people's response at the beginning of our service, and now we're going to see what they do. Acts 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We've been walking through really a series identifying who we are and what God has put us here to do. And we've said that we are a local church committed to Christ-centered worship. We looked at that last week in life-on-life discipleship. And we're going to see that in the life of the early church here this week. We do this really to grow believers, leaders, and churches. As we've walked through this together, what we've really tried to see is that the, the center of what we do is worship and discipleship. And then around this, over the next four weeks, we're going to walk through what sort of frames how we do this. When I was 14 years old, I was away at camp. And at the time, A lot of churches still had Sunday evening church. My family was at church. Well, while we were all away from the house, there was a a terrible storm. And lightning struck a tree next to our house, struck the tree, and then the electrical current traveled underground all the way to the other end of the house, came up in an electrical box in our living room, and, and blew out the TV and started a fire in our house. And on that day, our house really was gutted by fire, smoke, and eventually water damage. I remember coming home, and it was kind of almost unbelievable, you know, when you see uh, glass literally melted by, by the heat. And what, what happened then was my dad got our, our family together, and he would kind of do these family meetings, and he got us together, and he said, look, we've got some options here. Now, since we've moved into this house, we've had a few more kids. So as you know, I'm one of nine kids. They didn't start with nine kids. They, they ended there. And so when we moved into this house... You know, the the house kind of stayed the same size, but it felt like it was growing smaller because we were growing bigger. He said, we got a couple options here. One is that we can take this insurance money and and pay someone to rebuild the house, essentially the same footprint like it is. Or we can take that money in a payment and we can rebuild the house ourselves. Now, the idea of sharing a room with one brother instead of four sounded really good to me. So I voted, let's do this. Now, I didn't know all that it entailed, but we began the process of rebuilding our house and also adding on to the existing structure. Now, when I say that we built the house, it's really kind of an exaggeration because what happened then was some of the most remarkable six months that I've ever seen in my life because what happened was the community of our church came around us. And I remember men I knew who were Sunday school teachers, deacons, committed members of our church, finishing their job, working all day till five, six o'clock, and then they'd come out and they'd work with us us kids, my dad, and we worked till 9 or 10 o'clock that night, and the next day we'd do it again. And for six months, we pretty much worked around the clock. But what was remarkable then and is even more so looking now is the way the people of our church came alongside and, and walked through that process with us. I was talking with an adult friend of mine not too long ago, and he was 
He was telling me a story that he remembered my younger brother, Clark, who was very small at the time. If you've seen him here, he's 6'8 and 300 and something pounds. He's not small anymore. I look up to him. He makes me feel tiny. But uh, he, he was remembering. So this guy's dad is an electrician. He'd come there after work, and uh, he'd, he'd always ask him, Mr. Pactor, why do you use the big screwdriver? Because he's this little guy and trying to figure out. And really, it was an opportunity for our entire family to see a church community come together and, and impact us in ways that have kind of marked us to this day. And what happened then was really a taste of what should happen in the life of the church all the time, and that is one life touches another life with the ministry of the Word, and as that, as that happens, the church grows. And this is really how it's happened since the beginning of time. And the verses we're going to see today, that's exactly what happens here. There's this explosive growth in the church, but it's not through some amazing strategy or some amazing program. It's two things. It's the power of the Spirit of God and the ministry of believers in other people's lives. Life touching life. So we're going to see this process, really this interplay between God at work and the church active in ministry. And the first thing we see is the church is faithful in community in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Acts chapter 2 is known best for the Spirit's arrival at Pentecost. If you know anything about this story, Peter preaches the word, and when he preaches the word, in a single day, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Before that, there were 120 people total in the universal church of Christ. Suddenly, there are 3,120 people in this church. And we know if you keep reading through Acts, within a few more days, 2,000 more people came to faith in Christ. So a church that's 120, gone from 12 disciples to just over 100, is now over 5,000 people. Well, if you've ever experienced any sort of church growth that's rapid, you know that not only is that amazing, it's, it can be an amazing mess. It'd be like today, our church going from the size it is to well over 10,000 people, like that. And you can imagine all of the the, the logistical challenges that you would have. And you think, okay, how do we train these people? How do we minister to these people? How do we touch their lives? Well, as you look through this, it's very simple. They committed themselves to a set of basic practices. The word, prayer, fellowship, the breaking of the bread, communion. This is really what the church has done for 2,000 years. So you have this set of kind of basic practices. Sometimes we call this the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary ways that God works through the word, through fellowship, through prayer, and to time together. We sit here 2,000 years removed from this moment, and yet God's plan is still the same today. Imagine that you're part of this church You go from 100 to 5,000. How would you disciple all of these people? What would be your process for grafting them into the community of faith? Word, fellowship, ordinance, prayer. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the word of God, the fellowship, the gathering of the body, the breaking of bread, communion, and the prayers. And these are taking place in the life of the church. As we'll see as we go on, there is this day-by-day, life-on-life discipleship, but here's where it starts. The teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Now, as you look through these, 
Churches are pretty clearly often committed to three of them and often miss the fourth, don't they? Word, fellowship, prayer, we got that. But this church was taking communion every Sunday as a part of God's program for that church. So don't mistake, don't, don't mistake or make the mistake of believing that discipleship is primarily about small groups or Sunday school or one-on-one. It is those things, but it flows from the corporate life of the church. In other words, you have a ministry here every Sunday. You're not here just to receive, just to get. You have a ministry of worship, God, and discipleship, the people touching the lives of the people around you. Discipleship is just helping someone take one step closer to Jesus. So how did the early church understand discipleship programs? They devoted themselves to the gathering of the church. You might think, if someone comes to Christ, what is the most important thing they can do? They should read their Bible and pray. They, they, sh- they should commit themselves to a set of relationships. But they do this, the most important thing for them to do is to get connected to a local church. Because that's how these things happen. They're committed membership. So we grow as one life touches another life. We see this in the life of the church, but also in the way that God works a remarkable demonstration of the Spirit through miracles. Verse 43, all comes upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done. It's surprising. Just look at verse 43 again and look at the order there. It's actually written backwards from what you would expect. The end of the verse says, many signs and wonders are being done, and what you would expect to follow that is, awe comes upon every soul. It's actually the opposite. Awe came before the miracles. Awe is a word for reverential fear. Sometimes it's translated fear. These were no minor miracles. Acts 3 tells us the story of a well-known lame man who's, who's sitting by the temple, and, and Peter, James, and John, they're walking to the temple, and he, and he begs them for money. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I share with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. And this man who people know is lame gets up and walks, takes up his bed. The moving of the Spirit results in 3,000 conversions, and people fell down in awe at what they saw God do. And then God further confirms his power with these miracles, the spiritual power in the ministry of the apostles. So we see the church gathering, doing these things. We see the Spirit's power at work in miracles. And then we see the church's commitment tease itself out in other ways as well. The church commits to generosity and authenticity in communion, in or in community. All who believed were together and had all things in common. We see two signs of unity in this church. First, they're together, and secondly, they had things in common. This having in common is what we might call generosity. In other words, they recognize that what God has given them is not theirs. It's not a reservoir. It's, it's, it's like a pipeline that flows out in generosity to others. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. If God has changed your heart through the gospel, one of the clearest signs that this has happened is he changes the way you view your stuff. It's no longer your stuff. You're a steward of what God has given you. It goes from recognizing that stuff isn't ours, what's in my bank account isn't mine. It's something that God has given me a stewardship of to care for and be generous with as God has been generous with us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he talks about, he says, there's a connection between a church's generosity between giving and the gospel. He says it this way, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ 
and the generosity of your contribution. Now, this isn't some uh, you know, 21st century get-rich-quick preacher saying this. Paul is saying people will know that you at some level are God's disciples by your confession of the gospel and by your generosity. God hits us where it hurts. I mean, a lack of generosity is often an evidence that we don't truly understand the gospel. Now, how can we say this? Because Paul says that generosity comes from your confession of the gospel. If you don't regularly, cheerfully, and sacrificially give, you're evidencing what is a scary absence of what Acts says is a part of church life, and Paul says happens because of the gospel. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. God's word says, if we don't give generously, we're missing out on one of God's greatest blessings for our lives in being a disciple and demonstrating that we don't fully understand the gospel in every area of life. We'll see, hey, we got a constellation up there now. That's exciting. So I'll just roll here. I got my notes and y'all can roll with me. So we see generosity. Secondly, we see authenticity in communion. They were attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes. Look at the way that Luke writes this. He says, they were together, verse 44. Not they got together, they were together. It's a state of being. It's a new state of life for new Christians. The apostles aren't giving speeches about being more committed to the church. They're not saying, y'all come. People are coming because God has changed their heart by the power of the Spirit. And because the gospel does this in these people's hearts, they commit and they show up. These people know each other. They're together in worship. And they're in each other's lives, in each other's homes, every day. The the, the language here is emphatic. Every day they're worshiping together. They're eating together. They are sharing life together. I mean, we live in an incredibly busy culture, don't we? It's a culture that can take you by the throat and and run away with you if you're not careful. But think about the culture of this early church. They are literally working for their daily bread to survive. Like if they don't work that day, they don't have bread at home. It's a subsistence society. You see, our problem is not that we're too busy to commit to worship, to commit discipleship. It's that we have so much leisure time that we think we're too busy. We have more flex time in our schedule than practically any culture ever in the existence of history. And yet we're too busy. We think we're too busy. I mean, think about your family schedule and your church schedule. I mean, how many of us, because we know it's the right answer, would say, we know that church is more important than school. Well, we know that church is more important than work, but we'd skip church for tons of reasons before we'd ever miss school, ever miss work. But it's not just about that. It's about regular hospitality in homes. Day by day, they're in one another's homes. It starts with you having someone over, reaching into someone's life and welcoming that person into your life. Or it might be having the same someones over and over and over again, like these people are doing, building community with a set of people. 
But hospitality isn't merely about having people over, although it does include that. It ultimately is about gospel welcome for strangers, people you don't know. People that you welcome with a glad and generous heart because God has welcomed you gladly, you generously, you graciously. Now, we sometimes demonstrate that we don't truly understand this kind of hospitality because, you know, we have someone over maybe, and then we wait for someone to give us a call. Or we wait for someone to return the favor. Think if God treated us like that. Think if God, like, showered grace on us and sent back and said, what are you going to do for me? I mean, what if God welcomed us like we welcomed other people? What if God loved us the way we love other people? You see, true hospitality is about giving with a glad and generous heart and not looking for a stinking thing in return. Not expecting, not looking, not hoping, not resenting, not being hurt when it doesn't happen. Because we recognize God's grace to us. God has given generously to us. Imagine, imagine a church full, not with a, a few people who model this, but a church like this one we see here on the pages of Scripture, full of people, gladly, generously, over and over, demonstrating true gospel hospitality, a growing community. That's the kind of community that would grow because you're naturally drawing people into your life, sharing your life, and drawing people then into the life of the church. You see, we grow as one life touches another life. Ultimately, we see that God demonstrates the power of the Spirit by growing the community. Verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Now, in Romans chapter 10, God says that people can't be saved unless someone goes and preaches. But that's not what the text says here. There's not a commitment to a remarkable evangelism program. We do see committed discipleship. We do see lives touching lives. But the Lord grows the community as they share life with one another and, and then share the word with one another. The Lord adds to their number. The emphasis here is on the worship of the church, on the life of the church, and God doing this work. I mean, no doubt these people are sharing the gospel because people are coming to faith in Christ. We see people, Peter do it here in Acts chapter 2. But this is about the culture of this church more than a program of spreading the gospel. In other words, it's more about life and culture than it is about a program. Like people often think, you know, how do I disciple? And they think, you know, evangelism explosion or, or, or crew or something. And, and those are ministries that serve the church well and serve as parachurch ministries well. But here what it is is the church spends life together, invites people into their lives, and then what do they do? They share the gospel with those people. Now, that's like a three-step process. Inviting people into your life and, and then sharing Jesus. See, we, we often do this. We, we pray, you know, that God will save people. If we're really spiritual, we talk to people. But man, we struggle with talking to them about Jesus, don't we? And what happens here is it's, it's all three of these things. It's pray, it's building relationships with people, and then just tell them about Jesus. We complicate it because we're afraid of it. But it's real simple. These people, they're not like the, uh, the Navy SEALs of disciple makers. Like a couple days before, they didn't even know Jesus. But now they're sharing their faith. And as this happens, God adds to their number. 
You see, a healthy church is a growing church, and by that I don't mean primarily numerically, although you pray for that. It's people who are growing in their understanding of the word, in their understanding of the gospel, and as God grows them, their life touches someone else's life. But what I'm starting with today is an assumption. And it's the assumption that we all understand this that we are sinners in need of God's grace and that apart from God's grace to us through Jesus Christ, we have no hope. And perhaps you're here this morning and that is news to you. You've come with some idea that, that, that you can come at some level in your own strength and, and offer something to God. And it is true that God can use you, but apart from recognizing that your only hope is trusting Jesus, none of this matters. God sent his son Christ to rescue sinners. And if you're here this morning and recognize that you are a sinner justly condemned under God's justice for your sin, would you turn to Jesus and like these people, trust him to save you? A healthy church is something you want to share with others. It's not a gift you want to keep to yourself. One of the death signs for any church is when it becomes an inbred, ingrown community. It becomes, it's like, I don't know, the, the pond or the marsh at the end of the line. And soon it's collecting bacteria and pond scum, as opposed to a flowing river of life, fresh water, carrying the good news, the water of life, as Jesus said to the woman at the well. That will never, that you, if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone who didn't know Jesus? When was the last time you shared the gospel in a way to encourage someone who did know Jesus? And when was the last time that you committed your life like this to walking through life with someone else just to help them? in their walk with Christ, to help them take one more step closer to Jesus. That's how this church grows. Well, if this is true, what then does this mean for us? What does this mean for our discipleship? Now, the first thing here is, it may, it may surprise you, but, but it's an important part of what this means, and that is that we must believe in committed church membership. Every community that I've served in as a pastor has been different. In some, in some places, you know, you can't twist people's arms and convince them to become members. In other places, you know, people will sign up for membership far, far before they'd sign up for Costco or the gym. And, and, and the truth is, membership is really important. And we got a lot of them. We got over 2,800 members on our roll. And if you look around, there ain't 2,800 people in here. <laughs> This means we're not living in committed and accountable relationships like this with those people. I mean, Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How do we do that? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, church membership is a covenant commitment lived out by being active and present in worship and discipleship with an identifiable group of believers. In other words, if you're not active and you're not here, it's, it's not true commitment to a church. 
Now, I'm saying this to people who are sitting here. I get that. But in our church membership class, we walk through expectations for church members, and the first one is real complicated. Attend. Like, that, that kind of bottom line, that's like the, the lowest point of expectation. And, and I tell people, not to be unkind, but if, if you don't plan to attend worship, you shouldn't plan to be a part of this church. Because that's what a church does. That's actually what the word church means. is people that assemble together, meet together. The basic requirements we see in Scripture are people that have faith in Christ and and gather together. That's pretty much it. Now look, there are seasons of life and a lot of people who can't gather because of kids, because of work, because of health. I'm not talking about that. We, We get that. But the bottom line is that some people think having their name on a list is church membership, and that's not what we see in the Bible. We see people committed to doing life and sharing life together. Secondly, though, we also see the gathering of the church as true fellowship. So people often think small groups, interest-based groups, but small groups can't replicate what we see here. They can't replace the kind of community that happens in the New Testament. Discipleship does take place in those places, but it must ultimately be a ministry of every body part to the whole body. Now look, when y'all saw kids run out the door, something made you happy, didn't it? Right? I mean, that, that is a ministry of encouragement that you get here that you don't get from sitting in a Bible study with three other people. I mean, there is a group of older folks in our church who this, this week touched the life of my young children in a way that they don't get from hanging out with three, four, five, ten-year-olds. That's a ministry of the body to the whole body. And you can be old people and enjoy hanging out with old people, and you can be young families and really want to hang out with young families, but there are things you can get from old people if you're young and from young people if you're old that you can't get any other way. And that's the way that God designed it. This means that Sunday school, youth group, Bible study, children's group, they're all really important, but they ain't the church. They ain't the whole thing. They're different body parts, their hands and their eyes and their ears. But we need the whole body. I've heard people say things like, Sunday school is the really important part of church. I have even heard someone say, Sunday school is more important than the gathering of the church. Y'all, Sunday school was invented in 1780, which means that for 1,750 years, the church existed with no Sunday school. And survived somehow. Now look, I've been in churches where there was a push to get rid of Sunday school. That ain't who I am. And in those churches, I think it's an important part of the ministry of the church. That is not, so don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. But it can't replace it. Sunday school is important. The gathered worship of the church is essential. I mean, at the end, when you hear a benediction and a dismissal, church ends. But it doesn't really end. These people here, you're here to encourage them. You're here to touch their lives. Find someone. Someone said recently, so you have this time, like you expect us to talk to people? Yeah, please do. (laughs) Hang out and talk with the people around you. Find someone to encourage. Thirdly, we want to encourage spiritually intentional relationships over programmatic discipleship. In other words, we have Sunday school. We have Bible studies and other small group ministries. They're really important. But ultimately what we want is a culture where people recognize it's their responsibility to take the word of God and touch someone else's life. 
uh, not too long ago, a few years now, but we were traveling, and as we were traveling in the back seat, Grayson was teaching Clara Jane how to read. So Clara Jane can read now, but this is before that. And uh, as she was reading, she got real impatient. And so I don't know what book it was, but let's say it's, you know, C, spot, run. And so she was like doing it like this. C, C, spot, spot, run. She's just having to repeat the words after. And Liz is sitting in the front seat, you know, and she's like, look, that's not how you teach someone to read. You got to teach her the, the letter sounds. And Grace said, that would take too long. <laughs> and aren't we like that with discipleship? I mean, if you show up and you got it figured out and you're running, that's great. But we got to help you learn how to walk and then walk a little quicker. Or maybe you can't even walk. You can barely feed yourself. You can't walk. That takes too long. It's, it's a commitment. It's time. And so we want to build these relationships with people. Teach them how to make the letter sounds. Teach them how to digest the word. It's walking through life with people. Fourthly, we see discipleship, disciple-making as a normal part of the Christian life. What we see in the New Testament is that everyone who calls himself or herself a Christian is a disciple-maker. There are no exceptions to this. It's a normal part of the ordinary Christian life. Uh, Y'all know the game Simon Says? Anyone ever play that game? Okay, so the way Simon Says works, if Simon says it, you do it, and if Simon doesn't say it, you don't do it. So Simon says, raise your hand, raise your hand, okay? But if I just say, raise your hand, you raise your hand, you're out. And a lot of times we look at Scripture this way. Uh, Simon says, and then we just repeat it. And so it's like, memorize what Jesus says, but don't worry about doing what Jesus says. It'd be like me telling my kids, go clean your room. And their expectation is that they memorize that I said to them, go clean their room. What's my expectation? I don't care if they repeat the words back to me or not. What do I want them to do? Go clean your room. God said, go make disciples. And we're like, go make disciples. I got it. Simon said it, I got it. What happens is that until we put feet to what God has said, we have not obeyed God's word. This isn't a command for the superheroes of the church. There are thousands of people, baby Christians, and this is what they're doing. Their life is touching someone else's life. See, a church grows as one life touches another life with the word of God. What habits or patterns of thinking is God shaping or changing in your mind right now? How has God's word confronted us? How is it encouraging us? Let's take a moment now and respond to the word of God in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.